Our sermon text this morning takes us into the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the first 12 verses of Luke 23. And in preparation for that, we'll turn first to the Old Testament passage, the second psalm. Psalm 2. Before we move ahead into Luke 23. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we come to the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter. Jesus is in the custody of the Sanhedrin who have passed upon him a sentence of death for blasphemy, (coughs) a sentence that they have no authority to carry out as the Sanhedrin. Chapter 23. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. 
Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him, and he questioned him at some length. But he answered him, nothing. And the chief priests, scribes, were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before, they had been enemies with each other. Amen. From those formative early days back at Geneva College, I can recall the four semesters of humanities that were then required of every student of every major. Four sequential courses tracing the development of Western civilization from ancient times up to the present. The Roman civilization, I recall, the Roman civilization lasting over a thousand years before the empire's collapse in the 5th century AD, it contributed greatly, the Romans did, to the art and the architecture and the engineering and the rhetoric and most notably, the law and jurisprudence of Western civilization. The Romans, I was taught, transformed the administration of public justice from something that merely enforced the penalties of local custom and tradition to a jurisprudence vastly more transcendent, what you and I would call, perhaps, natural law. In the administration of civil and criminal justice, Roman law looked not so much to local custom or antiquity for its answers. Roman law looked to what was by them considered transcendently right and just. I begin this way today because when thoughtful people read the accounts of the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves how this travesty of justice ever could have happened. For its part, God's law, biblical law, actually celebrates Christ, doesn't it? Look at the second psalm. It celebrates the long-awaited king who, for the good of his people, first promulgated and now enforces that law. That law which one notable Roman citizen declared is holy and righteous and good. And even under the far inferior Roman law, which was purportedly based on natural law, there's no way that our Lord Jesus Christ could ever have been convicted of wrongdoing. Any wrongdoing let alone a capital offense. Under Roman law, there's no way the crucifixion of Jesus Christ ever could have happened. 
Three times in Luke's account alone, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, the dispenser of public justice, publicly exonerates him. Look with me at verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. How could that be clearer? Not guilty. And then verses 14 and 15, spoken to the chief priests, rulers, and the people at large. He says, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, I have examined him before you, and I've found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor is Herod. For he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Once again, not guilty. And then we have in verse 22, in response to the crowds chanting, Jesus, uh, demanding Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. Not guilty. This doesn't sound like a man in Roman custody, who within six hours is going to be nailed to a cross to die the long, slow, painful death of a dangerous criminal. It sounds more like a man who was found, not once or twice, but three times found not guilty. A man scheduled indeed to be punished, if only to please the crowd. Punished and then released. So I have to say again, how could this ever have happened? How could these proceedings possibly be leading up to the cross? How could justice ever have been turned so inside out as it was on that day? I want us to look at the cascading abandonment of law and justice in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was, by every account of those who knew him, a perfectly innocent man. Over the years, scholars have written books concerning this miscarriage of justice, books that take into account the standard courtroom procedures, for instance, of the Sanhedrin itself. Books that take into account their own legal protocols on that, that on this particular occasion, they, the Sanhedrin, willfully, wantonly laid aside. Now, I won't go into that degree of scholarly detail that the writers of these books go into. I just want to call to your attention those deficiencies that the New Testament calls our attention to. Legal deficiencies that in a better world, a normal world, a more just world, would have demanded that this be 
declared a mistrial, and the prisoner released unharmed. Let's start our examination with his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. An arrest unaccompanied by any specific charges. No charges made against him. He's simply taken into custody in the dark of the night. No explanation given. No reasons for the apprehension offered. Specific charges would have to be figured out later. And speaking of the charges made against Jesus, eventually, do you notice how those charges keep shifting and changing as the trial goes on? How can a prisoner be expected to defend himself against such a moving target as criminal charges that keep changing as the trial proceeds? First, it's the high priest's charge of blasphemy a charge substantiated solely on the basis of Caiaphas' own presuppositions. Once he'd forced Christ to testify of himself that he is the Christ, which is objectively true, Caiaphas declares it to be blasphemy, which is to say a lie, simply on the basis of the fact that in my prejudicial opinion as Caiaphas, He's not the Christ. He says he is, but he isn't, because I say he can't be. Any thinking person can see what viciously circular reason, reasoning Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are perpetrating against the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can defend himself against that? Caiaphas wants this man, Jesus, dead. Now that a charge has been formulated, Caiaphas is faced with two problems. First, the Roman government forbids provincial courts like the Sanhedrin from administering the death sentence. Capital crimes have to go before the Roman legal authorities, and the Romans aren't going to recognize blasphemy as a capital crime. <clears throat> to the pluralistic Romans, it's just a matter of differing religious opinions. Those are the two problems. We want Jesus to die. We've accused him of blasphemy. He can't die because we can't enforce it. We send him to the Romans, but the Romans don't recognize blasphemy. This situation gets in the way of Caiaphas' final objective, which is to kill Jesus. So he has to send Jesus to Judea's Roman procurator, the Latin term for their provincial governor. And he has to drop the charge of blasphemy, not even mention it to Pilate, and come up with something else. Something that will actually gain legal traction under Roman law. He's just doing whatever it takes to get a conviction for a capital crime under that law. Whatever might stick with the Roman governor, and it doesn't matter to Caiaphas, doesn't matter to 
the Sanhedrin whether those charges against Jesus are true or not. Verses 1 and 2. Then the whole body of them, that is the whole 70-member Sanhedrin, arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man not blaspheming, notice. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. There's nothing about blasphemy anymore, is there? Blasphemy, even if it were true, would never result in Jesus being put to death under Roman law. No, now that we have him before Pilate, let's drop the original charge and make him out to be a dangerous insurrectionist instead. Whatever it takes to get Jesus killed. What more can we say about the wholesale abandoning of justice in the trial of Jesus the Christ? Two weeks ago I mentioned that his preliminary arraignment before the Sanhedrin had been not during normal business hours, but at night, which is illegal. And not at the courthouse, but in a private residence, which is illegal. Matthew and Mark both add the fact that many false witnesses were brought before the Sanhedrin to testify against Jesus. The problem was that being fabricated, being fictional, the testimony of the witnesses couldn't be made to agree. It wasn't consistent. Caiaphas was having all kinds of trouble getting Jesus killed and out of the way. As we think about the abandonment of justice in this case, shouldn't we also consider the repeated physical, mental, emotional abuse that was poured out upon Jesus? Not just after his conviction, but before his conviction. Shouldn't we also include the uncertainty even of the proper jurisdiction under which he'd be tried? It's, it happens to be Passover. So anyone who's anyone in Judea is in Jerusalem that week. Pilate, the Roman governor, lives there, but Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, this is the Herod responsible, you remember, for the death of John the Baptist. Herod also happens to be in town for the feast, for the Passover. Pilate wants nothing to do with arbitrating what he sees as a strictly Jewish difference of opinion and happens to pick up among the charges as they're pouring out against Jesus. Happens to pick up that Jesus hails from Galilee. And he sees this as a convenient way of just washing his hands of the matter altogether. Verse 7, when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Well, that's fine. 
except that Herod Antipas, unfortunately, has no interest in the proper administration of law or justice. The death of John the Baptist kind of puts the seal on that, doesn't it? Herod's abiding interest is in the perks of the office. The Caesarean palace, his home by the sea, the soft clothes, the parties, the leisure time to have his eyes and ears tickled in various ways. Herod, you remember, used to take delight in listening to John the Baptist when he had him in his custody. He enjoyed listening to him, but never in doing what he said. And his long-standing interest, Herod's long-standing interest in seeing Jesus of Nazareth was no loftier, no more noble than a child's fascination with the prospect of a magic show. All he wanted was to see Jesus perform some miracle so he'd have something titillating to tell his dinner guests at his next dinner party. Guess what I saw? Jesus doesn't have the time of day for the likes of Herod, does he? He answered him nothing. At every step, Jesus the accused, Jesus the prisoner, is denied the due process of law. He's denied by Jew, he's denied by Gentile. And even so, the plain facts concerning his innocence speak for themselves. Pilate exonerates him. Once, twice, three times. Not guilty. And still on the pages of the Gospels, we see this absolutely innocent man being publicly humiliated, blindfolded, buffeted, scourged, and crucified. By all rights, could have been, should have been released. Or rather, he should never have been detained at all. Yet he suffered these things of which we know. <coughs> Many people of philosophical inclinations have pondered down through the ages why it is that bad things happen to good people. We're still asking that question today, aren't we? As our loved ones, our friends, our family, they suffer and they die of painful cancers and of cancer's painful treatments. As children and young people live out not half of their three score and ten, we grieve for them. We suffer along with them. We miss them when they're gone. 
And here in the gospel, we have the clearest possible testimony of the worst of fates happening to the best of men. So how could this have happened? Two disciples were discussing this very thing as they made their way home just a few days after the sufferings and death of Jesus. They thought about it, they pondered it, and just the thinking of it made them sad and dejected. The more they talked together, the more sad and dejected they became. Considering these things can leave us sad and dejected too. How could this have happened to their Jesus? How could these things have happened to our Jesus? We were hoping, those two disciples said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And the apostle Peter pondered that very same question as well. How could this have happened? He pondered it day after day, week after week, until by the seventh week, by the time of Pentecost, the next of those three annual feasts, bringing Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, by that day, the promised Holy Spirit had made the answer to that nagging question crystal clear in Peter's mind. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he lifted up his voice in the crowd and preached. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Godless men, Jew and Gentile alike, abused Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the innocent, they abused him just as long and as hard and as mercilessly and as deliberately as they could. They meant to and they did until his human nature of flesh and blood simply had all it could take. breathed his last and died. Godless men did it to him. And today before the bar of infinite justice, those men are answering for their behavior. Our interest in those godless men is now at an end. History has moved on and their destiny, whether it's a destiny of justice or of mercy, is beyond our power to influence or even to know. 
But I want you to notice that genuine human guilt notwithstanding, in all of this, God had a predetermined plan and foreknowledge. A predetermined plan and foreknowledge of the things that were unfolding that Friday morning. It was indeed a very black Friday for our Lord Jesus. But a very good Friday for those who love him who love him. And how can that be? As another later apostle would put it, the sufferings and death of Christ mean the reconciliation of lost sinners to God. Built of Jew and Gentile alike, the Lord Jesus Christ did redeem Israel. He redeemed the true Israel, the Israel of God, his blood-bought church. At the cross of Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. On our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the Gospel is too wonderful for us to take in fully. But whenever we read it, and whenever we hear it, whenever we meditate upon it, and turn these things over in our minds, and consider new things that perhaps we had not seen before, the wonder of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus becomes all the more marvelous to us. We ask, O oh Lord, for your blessing upon your people. We ask that you would give us greater understanding, not so that we would merely understand, but so that we would be changed, transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might come to love you more fully, that as we grow in age, old age, we would also grow strong in the Lord, that we would become pillars of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our own time, in our own generation, that men and women and children around us, the world around us might see, even in such as us something of the glory and the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies of Jesus. Grant these things we pray in his name. Amen.